About three years ago, I was, uh, during the summer, I was at Wake Forest, and I was sitting on the business school porch uh, with a student, a guy named Blake, and Blake was a rising senior at the time, and we were just talking about his experiences at Wake Forest, um, and tell you a little about Blake, Blake, um, Blake is beautiful, his friends actually made fun of him for being such a beautiful guy, um, uh, he, I mean, he was on homecoming court. He was in, uh, he was in a fraternity. He was, he was a star. Wake Forest is a comedy troupe. He was a, a, a lead in a lot of their, uh, sketch comedy stuff. He was brilliant academically. He was involved in RUF. He was a president's aide. I mean, this guy's resume, uh, was full. And I asked him, I said, what advice would you give to incoming freshmen at Wake Forest? And Blake said that the best advice that he was given as a freshman was this. He said, I'd tell them to do less. Do a few things well. Don't overextend yourself. He said, you know, I just didn't take that advice. And now headed into my senior year, I feel like I missed out because I did too much. And this illustrates one of the great dilemmas of college, which is the question, what do I do with my freedom? What do I do with my freedom? Well, this is our last session together Um, And just to recap where we've been, the first night we asked the question, who am I? The question of identity. Last night we we asked the question, where do I belong? What is my primary community? And tonight our question is, how do I use my freedom? I just want to say, uh, students, thank you um, for the privilege it's been to to be with you guys this weekend. Um, My hope is that through our time together that you are better equipped to answer these questions for yourselves. That as you head out from here and you head into college, that you are better equipped now to actually ask and answer these questions for yourselves. So tonight, what do I do with my freedom? College, more than anything else, is associated with freedom. So question, how should you spend it? What should you invest your time in? How should you spend your energy? How will you know what to say yes to and what to turn down? This is actually not an easy question to answer because... One of the reasons is there are so many options that will fall at your feet the second you arrive at college. At Wake Forest, there are over 150 student groups that you can be a part of. I mean, how do you navigate that? That's just the clubs alone. Mark Edmondson, who's an English professor at UVA, he wrote an article entitled Dwelling in Possibilities about the college students he teaches. And he writes this. He says, The students I teach live in multiple possibilities. They are enemies of closure. For as much as they want to do and actually manage to do, they always strive to keep their options open, never to shut possibilities down before they have to. The top students at my university, the ones who set the standard for the rest, even if they drive the rest a little crazy, want to take eight classes a term, major promiscuously, have a semester abroad at three different colleges, connect with every possible person on social media. My, my students are possibility junkies. And there's a hunger to my students' hustle for more life. But I think it's possible that down below bubbles a fear. Do it now, for later may be too late. Right? The thing that drives this is FOMO, this fear of missing out. And I think this is one of the main motivations for the students I know, this motivation of fear. Fear that maybe they won't accumulate all the experiences that they're supposed to, and that if they miss out now, somehow they will mess up their future. 
They are possibility junkies. And it drives them to say yes to too much and to say yes to the wrong things. They use their freedom to become possibility junkies. And friends, this is exhausting. And, you know, that is, that is one way to do college. You can go and do that. David Brooks, who's a best-selling author and a New York Times columnist, he offers an alternative way. He says, instead of dwelling only in possibility, he encourages people to close off their options. This is what he writes. Close off your options. You have an array of opportunities and you naturally want to keep all your opportunities open. People will tell you to make a series of tepid commitments to see what pans out, to hedge your bets, to play it smart. But this strategy leads to impotence. You spread yourself thin, you dissipate your energies, and you never put full force behind any cause. You make your own trivial career the object of your attention, not the vision that inspired you to work in the first place. And the person who does this leaves no mark. Only the masters of renunciation leave an imprint. Only those who have mastered the art of saying no. Only those who can say a hundred no's for the sake of saying one overwhelming yes. Only the person who has burned the ships and committed to one issue has the courage to cast aside the advice of the strategists and actually push through change. What Brooks is encouraging us to do is to find one issue that we are so committed to say yes to that we're actually free to say no to other things. To have one resounding yes that frees us to pass on other opportunities without regret. That yes frees us from the fear of missing out on something epic because we're already involved in the most epic mission that we could imagine. So just to recap where we've been so far, the first night we said, whoever you name as king, you give the authority to name you. And if you name Jesus as your king, he names you as his beloved He names you righteous and holy and child of God. And last night, we saw that if we name Jesus as our king, he gathers you into his church, into the kingdom of the king, into the family of God. And he answers the question, where do I belong by giving you himself and giving you his people? And tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to zero in on one word from Jesus that has far-reaching implications for your college life. Jesus is also the God who sends us into the world with a mission. He gives us the one resounding yes, one thing to commit our whole lives to. In the passage that we heard from John 20, we see the first encounter the disciples have with Jesus after he's raised from the dead. These are the first words that Jesus spoke in his resurrected body to his disciples. And what does he say? Turn there with me um, back to, to John 20. Look at verse 19. What does he say here? It's a simple greeting. He says, peace be with you. This would have been a common hello in the ancient Near East. Still a common hello today in the Middle East. He said, shalom, peace be with you. But if this is just a common greeting, why why is it that Jesus repeats himself? Look at verse 22. He says it again. Verse 21, he says, peace be with you again. Already he said hello. Why would he say it twice? And it's because Jesus' hello is more than just a hello. In saying this, Jesus is revealing his mission to his disciples. He is naming that one thing, that one resounding yes, that will help you navigate the endless possibilities you will have in college. 
Jesus is telling you how to use your freedom. Now, throughout the Bible, this word peace is much more than a greeting. Shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace, is a much grander vision than our English word peace. Because when we hear the word peace, we usually just think of ceasefire, right? The absence of conflict. But the word shalom is a much larger word than this that actually pictures for us total human flourishing. Humans rightly related to themselves, rightly related to one another, right related to the creation, and rightly related to God. This, this peace, this shalom, is the restoration of all things under the gracious rule of God. It's the kingdom of God, God's reign and order and justice and grace extending to all areas of his creation. Shalom is the full story of salvation in the Bible. It's the story of where human history is headed. Tim Keller, um, who's a pastor in New York, wrote this about Shalom. He says, when we look at the whole scope of the storyline of the Bible, we see clearly that Christianity is not only about getting one's individual sins forgiven so we can go to heaven. That is an important means of God's salvation, but it's not the final end or purpose of it. The purpose of Jesus' coming is to put the whole world right, to renew and restore the creation, not to escape it. It is not just to bring personal forgiveness and peace, but also justice and shalom to the world. So in John 20, Jesus is saying that the mission the Father sent him on is the mission of peace, of shalom. And if you look in verse 21, Jesus says, As the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus sends you. He sends y'all. He sends us to be agents of his peace in the world. I want you to listen to the Apostle Paul explain the mission of Jesus. He does this um, in Colossians, the end of Colossians 1. The reason that he sent Jesus, the reason that God sent Jesus into the world. This is from Colossians 1 verses 19 to 20. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of the cross. So as the father sent Jesus, so he sends you. As he sends you out, sends you to UVA and to Swarthmore and Northwestern and South Carolina and Tulane, Princeton, Case Western, St. Andrews, everywhere in between. Jesus sends his people to extend his kingdom, to be agents of his redemptive work wherever they go. Jesus sends his people to be, to be part of his establishing peace. So in light of this, for our final time together, I want to do something a little different than what we did the past two nights. Instead of camping out in one passage for our whole time, I want to use this framework of peace um, to springboard to give us two snapshots of what life looks like when you belong to King Jesus. What life looks like when you receive your name from him. What it can look like for Jesus to extend his kingdom through you during your next four years. These are just two snapshots. There are many others that we could work through, but um, I want these two in particular to be on your radar as you prepare spiritually for college over the next coming weeks. So these two areas I want to talk about first are academics and second, integrity. The first snapshot is academics. So the testimony of scripture is that all things were created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. Colossians 1, 15 to 16 says this. It says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And hear what he said. He said, all things are created by him, through him, and for him. By Jesus, meaning that Jesus is the agent of creation. He is the word spoken by the Father to make all things. And all things are created for Jesus. Creation is a gift from God the Father to God the Son. But what does it mean that all things are created through Jesus? What does it mean that all things are created through Jesus? One college professor put it this way. He said, creation was like a Play-Doh squeezers, like the Play-Doh squeezers that force Play-Doh through a hole with a certain shape. When creation was made through Christ, everything that came out the other side was Christ-shaped. Everything had his fingerprint on it, has his aroma, has his touch. It's like being able to recognize a Monet or a Rembrandt. There's just something distinctive about the stroke or the color or the theme. Everything in our world has the theme, the stroke, the color of Jesus. And this means that whatever you study at school, from business to art to engineering to philosophy to Arabic to Mandarin, all of it falls under the category of everything. So as you study, which you'll be doing a lot of in the next four years, as you study, you are investing time in understanding the things that were made by Christ, through Christ, and for his glory. And what we do when we study is we actually tend to segment our lives and to think that the time we spend studying is not God time. But because all things were made through Christ, not just for him and not just by him, but through him, then times on your problem sets and on your research papers and on your theater productions are God time. This is time that you are living as citizens of God's kingdom and contributing to his mission of extending his shalom to the world. Friends, in the kingdom of Jesus, all of your life can be worship. So how should you use your freedom in college? Say, by learning to do everything in service to King Jesus who has created all things. So whatever you study, whatever you choose to do in the future, know that God has stamped his thumbprint on it and is calling you to study it and to work at it for his glory and for the good of the world. So that's academics. The second snapshot I want to look at is integrity. And turn with me to the passage that Emma read for us from Colossians 3. I'm read that again. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that if you name Jesus as your king, then to live with integrity is to live to God's glory, to live in the name of Jesus. And let me acknowledge this, that I know that following Jesus can be really hard. But Jesus gives us his spirit so that we can follow him. And, and he calls us to live with integrity. So what is integrity? What is integrity? A definition I want to give you for integrity. Integrity is being true to your ultimate authority. Integrity is being true to your ultimate authority. So as Americans, when we hear the word integrity, we think that integrity is about being authentic, right? We think it's about being true to yourself. And this is because as Americans, we've elevated the self, we've elevated the individual to the place of supreme authority. You are taught from a young age, you're taught from a young age that your authority, your highest authority is yourself. So you're taught to be true to yourself. 
So integrity, as our culture defines it, is obeying that maxim. Be true to yourself. But if being, if integrity actually is being true to your ultimate authority, and if you are a Christian, you are not your own. Your ultimate authority, Jesus Christ, has purchased your life with his own. He has delivered you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of, his, of himself, of the Son. He has brought you back from death. On the cross, he exchanged his life for yours so that you no longer belong to yourself. You belong to him. So then Christian integrity is being true to the authority of Jesus Christ, being true to your king. Even when you yourself can't explain why he has asked something of you. Obeying Jesus when every other voice is telling you to do the exact opposite. And see, one of the problems with defining integrity only as being authentic to ourselves is that we can't truly trust ourselves. We don't always have the wisdom or the foresight or the power to know what is best or true all of the time. My friend Luke Miedema tells this story. He says, one time his friend thought that his whole body was covered with hair. This friend is also a pastor and he'd been given some medication by his doctor. And one of the possible side effects was hallucinations. So he took some beds and he went, he took some meds and he went to bed. And at some point during the night, he woke up and realized in the short time he'd been asleep, he had grown an entire layer of fur over his entire body. This is a true story. So it didn't bother him that much. He just got out of bed and decided, hey, I should probably shave this off. So he gets in the shower and he starts shaving and his wife wakes up and she says, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm just shaving my fur. <laughs> and she says, you don't have any fur. Come back to bed. Go to sleep. Um, now, here's my point of this. He had a crisis of authority. All right, he had a choice to make. Every sensory input in his body was telling him, his touch, his vision, they were all telling him that he was covered in hair. And so it was obviously true to him, except that the voice that he had grown to trust over the years of his marriage, a voice that he knew did not lie, a voice that he knew had his best interest in mind, was telling him the exact opposite. So he had a crisis of authority. Which voice would he listen to? Which one was the most rational choice? Which was the voice voice that had the most integrity with reality? Well, his wife convinced him that despite all the external evidence that he was not covered in fur, that he needed to go to bed and he needed to call the doctor in the morning and get some new meds. Um, Listening to a voice that you have grown to trust, even when every external indication, every bit of input and evidence points the other way, this is a sign of true integrity. And as you head into college, you are going to face, face authority crises. There will be many situations where you have to make a choice. Will I listen to the voice of Jesus or will I listen to the voices of other authorities? So I just want to look at three crises of authority that you will probably face. So the first one is rest. And this is when your seemingly overwhelming homework deadlines and your God say different things. Friends, you need to rest. The way that God has designed us is to work for six days and to rest for one. We need a Sabbath as humans. This is part of how he's made us. We're told in Hebrews 4 that Jesus has secured for us an eternal rest. And one of the primary ways that we worship Jesus is by resting from our work. Because Jesus has accomplished his work. So what if, 
Instead of measuring how busy you are, you measured how rested you are. What if instead of answering how are you by saying, oh, I'm so busy, you live by a different authority and you answered how are you by saying I'm rested. See, when you name Jesus as king, he reorders your time. So when you feel the pull to measure your busyness rather than your rest, you have a crisis of authority. Another place for a crisis of authority would be forgiveness. And this is the crisis when your heart and your God say different things. When God says that forgiving your roommate again for that same thing that they know drives you crazy, that that's better than holding a grudge, that you are to forgive as Christ forgave you even when you don't want to, you have a crisis of authority. Another place you'll have a crisis of authority is in the party scene. Getting drunk. This is when your friends and your God say different things. When God says very clearly that drunkenness is a sin, but everyone at college says that it's very good to get drunk, you have a crisis of authority. And hooking up. When your body and your God say different things. When God tells you that not hooking up with that gorgeous girl or that gorgeous boy who is willing and ready is actually the best thing for you. That not giving your body to them is the path of life and goodness when every cell in your body is saying, but God, it feels the opposite. You have a crisis of authority. And when you are in a crisis of authority, you must ask yourself, is God actually good? Do I actually believe that Jesus is the good king who laid down his life for me, that the Bible claims he is? And as you learn to surrender to your king, as you trust his good word to you, a word that you have grown to trust, a word that is filled with amazing promises that indicates that he is in fact interested in your best, as you surrender to Jesus, your life begins to become a sign to the world that you are living in the kingdom of God. Your life becomes a sign. It points others to God and his goodness. Your personal integrity is a sign that you are on the mission of God. And one of the primary ways that you are called to worship King Jesus. And this didn't really click for me until my senior year of college. That's when I came to understand the grace of God for myself. When I finally knew that God's acceptance of me was all grace. That Jesus didn't love me because of anything that I did or that I didn't do. But that he loved me because I am his. And this set me free. Free to be on mission. Free to be on mission in my academics. Free to be mission on my integrity. And the pieces of the puzzle begin to fall into place. Jesus really is better than the world. And the name that King Jesus gives you really is better than any name that any false king will give you. So, surrender to the authority of the only king. Why? Because he surrendered for you. He surrendered to the cross for you. And he sends you on mission. And when Jesus sends you on his mission... He sends you right back into the middle of your normal, everyday, mundane, tedious life. Your studies, your hobbies, your entertainment, your relationships. His call is not a call out of the university, out of your friendships, out of your jobs, but further and further into these everyday things. Living where you already live, with who you already live, doing what you already do, but doing it now with the goal of bringing the shalom offered in the gospel bringing God's peace into every aspect of your life. If you're not connected to the mission of God in your mundane, 
everyday activity, then you're not connected to the mission of God. Because our lives are comprised of the mundane, the normal, the everyday. N.T. Wright, who is a a British theologian and bishop, um, he wrote this. He said, You are, strange it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself. You are accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, every act of gratitude and kindness, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk, and of course every prayer, every deed that spreads the gospel and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. That is the logic of the mission of God. Jesus could bring about his plan to redeem his creation any way he wanted. He could have snapped his fingers and it would be done. But after his resurrection, he went to heaven, he sent his spirit, and he entrusted, he, he entrusted the means by which he will bring about his plans to his people. After he, sent, he, he ascended to heaven, he sent his spirit, he entrusted the work to his people. And he invites us into the labor and the joy of his mission. So I want to ask you this question. I want this to be a question that you consider for yourself. What is your mission in college? When you go to college, what do you want to be about? What is the one thing that you will be sold out on that you're willing to say no for? And if it's anything other than the goal of bringing the shalom of the gospel into into everything you do, question for you to ask yourself, is that mission really worth your time? Many of you, I expect, um, have accepted Jesus into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior. I want you to ask yourselves, have you accepted Jesus as your personal sender? The one whose peace you are called to extend into everyday life. And friends, I hope you do. I hope you say yes to this mission that extends beyond death and into eternity And it shapes the way you answer the question of your freedom in college. And just as I close um, for the weekend, I want to give you one piece of advice as you head to college. And that piece of advice is this. Um, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid as you go to college. Don't be afraid of what other people think of you. Because Jesus has given you an identity that is more secure and more valuable than anything that the world can give you. Don't be afraid of wasting your time on Christian community because that's what you're designed for. And don't live with a fear of missing out because as you live according to the word of God, yeah, you might miss out on some trivialities, but you will not ultimately miss out on anything that ultimately matters. Jesus is your king, crucified and risen for you. He has named you as his beloved. He has gathered you into his new community And now he sends you onto campus to be an agent of his peace into his kingdom. Jesus sends you, Jesus goes with you, and Jesus is waiting for you when you arrive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God of all grace, that in your goodness, you have a mission for us. We thank you, Jesus, for how much you love us that you've laid down your life for us. Um, 
that you give us your peace and that you invite us to participate with you in this great work of extending your peace to the world. And Father, thank you for these friends. And I pray that you would bless them, that you would encourage them, and that you would fill them with your spirit, that they might go in your name into the places that you send them, that they might receive your peace and extend it, um, that you might receive great glory in all that they do. And we pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.